Of course, the Democratic primary was rigged in 2016. But it's important to separate out what is quote-unquote rigged and thus wrong and unethical and what is just the hard reality of politics because they aren't the same. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for November 8th, 2017. So first, a quick technical thing. For those of you who get notices about the podcast via our email list, well, we stumbled upon a glitch that we've now fixed. Previously, if you clicked on the Listen Now tab in the email, it wouldn't take you to the right web link. Oops, my bad. But now that's all fixed, so now you can go from that Listen Now tab in the email right to the podcast. So now let's go to the show. Up front this week, I want to give a few thoughts about the issue that has popped up and been in the news a lot and discussion on social media about whether the Democratic primary in 2016 was rigged. And then we're going to go across the world to dig into labor rights in South Korea, which is not a pretty picture. So first of all, what is quote-unquote rigged? Now, you can take lots of definitions off the websites and in actual dictionaries, but here's one definition of rigged. It's situations where unfair advantages are given to one side of a conflict. And so there's no doubt in my mind, as someone who served as a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders and was deeply involved in the campaign and follows politics, that the 2016 primary was rigged, if you look at that definition. But I think people are way too focused on what has been in the news, and that would be the fundraising deal that was agreed to with the Clinton campaign, and that came about in revelations from the book written by the former Democratic National Committee chairperson, the interim chairperson, Donna Brazil. And I think it's important for those of us who are progressives and those of us, especially in the Bernie movement, who are trying to change the rules and have honest elections, that we differentiate between things that are about politics, maybe things that we don't like about politics, versus things that are either immoral, illegal, or rigged. And so to start out, here's one thing that isn't about being a rigged election. The almost overwhelming support that Hillary Clinton had from elected officials all across the country. Now, we may not like that, and that was a tough reality, but it was just a fact of life. And Bernie Sanders started out quite late in presidential campaigns. The entire presidential campaign for Bernie was basically for one year. It started roughly in May 2015 and then ended at the convention in the summer of 2016. And Bernie's a big boy. He's been around politics a long, long time. And he knew that he would face basically the entire political establishment. And that has largely to do with the fact that Hillary Clinton had been on the scene a long time and had built strong ties in the political establishment, an establishment that, in fact, the Bernie Sanders political revolution was trying to upend and take down and change. So it's also important to, I think, distinguish between those in a political party who have power and influence versus those who may serve on some committee and or be simply a staff person. And I think, therefore, when we talk about the establishment or the Democratic Party, we should be very specific, if we can, about talking about who we're speaking about. Not everybody has equal power and not everybody should be just collected into the same group. And that's important because it helps us think about people we want to hold accountable and the changes that have to be made. So yes, there were unethical, perhaps corrupt deals made to help Clinton in big ways at the DNC. There's no question that the special deal the Clinton campaign cut around fundraising was an advantage at the very least because it was a signal given inside the Democratic National Committee that the Clinton campaign was to be given preferential access and treatment. Another way the primary was rigged was in the behavior of the now-deposed, corrupt, unethical former chair of the Democratic National Committee, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And in specifically, it had to do with how Wasserman Schultz, who had the sole authority to decide when the party would have debates, her decision 
to hold as few debates as humanly possible and to schedule many of them at times that would guarantee a low viewer audience. I often like to joke that if Debbie Wasserman Schultz could pull it off, she would schedule a debate on the Home Shopping Network at 3 a.m. to guarantee a small audience. And in fact, one of the debates was scheduled, I don't remember exactly the date, during a playoff game of the National Football League. And Wasserman Schultz clearly was trying to tilt the field in favor of Hillary Clinton. And, And the debate issue was important because by making sure that those debates were scheduled at bad times and encouraging a small viewer audience, fewer people got to hear from Bernie Sanders, who was trying to get his vision out there, essentially get his name recognition up compared to Hillary Clinton, who clearly had high name recognition. And here's the corrupt nature of Debbie Wasserman Schultz writ large by scheduling the debates at these weird times. She guaranteed a small audience, which disadvantaged the Democratic Party overall, because by comparison, Republicans were holding something like 20 or 25 debates. I don't remember the number. And there were millions of people who were tuning into these debates and, you know, clearly hearing some really wacky language. But Nonetheless, there was no counter to that in relative terms. And so Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who always, in my view, was not only incompetent, but ran the DNC for her own personal benefit. And I think actually even some Clinton people were happy to see her go when she was deposed just before the convention in 2016, largely because of pressure from Bernie Sanders and the political revolution. Now, some of the way these rig things happen in very small ways, some of these things that didn't rise to people's attention. So, example, I traveled throughout the country, as I mentioned, as a surrogate for Bernie, and I heard all these little things that were clearly biased. Here's one example. A Clinton operative got office space in rural Nevada in the party headquarters before Clinton was even the nominee. And that kind of support not only is material support, but it sends messages to people, volunteers and other activists in states like Nevada and happened elsewhere. Quote, unquote, she's the nominee. You got to get with the program. But now let's look at a example of the way in which elections are rigged that have almost nothing to do with this particular election. And it's really because the whole election process is broken, certainly in primaries and caucuses. And it's a process that discourages people from taking part. And in my view, that is, in fact, a way in which the system is rigged. And it's rigged in that rules are set up to benefit incumbents. We discourage people from taking part in participating in elections because incumbents actually, even though they often talk about voter registration, increasing the numbers. They don't want actually new voters because incumbents aren't sure about how those new voters are going to vote. So a great example, and this is an example that's important to understand the nature in which these things are rigged in deep in the system, not just about 2016, was in New York. You may remember that during the primary, something like 120,000 votes just poof, disappeared in Brooklyn. And the first thing to note is that the New York City Board of Elections has a long history, way before 2016, of gross, gross incompetence. And in my view, that in breaking the law, which is what happened when they disappeared 120,000 voters, that actually harmed both candidates, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. It is simply not believable if you get beyond stretching conspiracy theories even further than, well, conspiracy theories, that this incompetent body could be so ingenious to completely eliminate about 117,000 voters who magically were all Bernie supporters. But lots of Bernie supporters saw that happen and said, oh, this system is rigged against our candidate." And I argued at the time that if those voters had remained on the rolls, that Clinton likely would have won those voters in Brooklyn with roughly the same percentage breakdown she won that borough generally. That does not mean that the election system in New York is not damaged. It is, in fact, one of the worst election systems in the country and discourages people from voting. And here's one of the most insane parts of the election laws, which, as I said, exist in my view to protect incumbents and her challengers like Bernie Sanders. 
And that is the requirement that to change your registration with another party, let's say you're registered as an independent, in order to vote as a Democrat in the primary, you have to file that change nine months prior to the primary date. Think about that. In the case of 2016, when people were only starting to pay attention to the primary late in 2015, you would have had to change your election registration. Think about this. You would have had to change your election registration in New York in October 2015. Before people were even paying attention, you would have had to change that registration or to, part to participate in the primary in April 2016. And so that discourages people, especially new people, from participating in the Democratic primary. Now, to wrap up this general conversation and on this point about New York and primaries, a lot of what happened in New York has encouraged people to argue for, quote unquote, open primaries. That means that they wouldn't be by primary, more like what they call the jungle primary in California, where everybody competes in one election. The top two vote getters then move on to the final round. I would say that I'm agnostic about this, but I do think that what does make sense is that we argue for same day registration. And that means that if you're a person who gets inspired by a candidate one week before the election, whether that be Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton, you walk by a rally and you say, I want to go and vote for that person. You should be allowed to walk into the election polling place, register to vote that same day for the election and to participate in the party that you want to participate in. That, in my opinion, has the same effect as an open primary. And I think it's likely to garner more support, especially from lots of new voters, because it makes sense to people. And I'll have a lot more to say about this issue in the coming weeks and months, but now let's move on to really important news coming out of South Korea. Now, most of the news coming out of South Korea that you will read or watch has almost everything to do, I assume, with the saber rattling about North Korea. You won't see virtually anything about this story. Hang Sang-gyun is the president of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, and he has been in jail since December 2015, serving a three-year sentence for defending trade union rights and leading a social campaign against the corporate corruption and repression of the government of President Park, which led, in fact, to her ouster. Now, Han goes way back in the movement for trade unions. During the years of military rule in the 1980s, Han helped to organize a union in his auto manufacturing plant, and he led an amazing occupation of the auto plant, along with 1,700 other workers when the plant owners tried to close it. And doing that occupation earned him his first three-year sentence in prison, but it did help to protect hundreds of workers' livelihoods. So now we pick up the story with my first conversation with an old friend, Christine Peter, who's the Director of International Affairs for the UAW, the United Auto Workers, my union. The UAW has had a long-time bond with Han and his union, and actually the UAW has a long history of solidarity with, in, with international unions that goes back decades. And Christine, you know, one of the things that I've been proud as a UAW member is the UAW has always had this global perspective to reach out around the world, partly because of the need to get support for manufacturing, for auto companies, auto workers that are doing work elsewhere because that affects what happens to UAW members, but also because of a spirit, a progressive spirit. And so give our listeners a little context of that, that this isn't unusual what we're about to talk about. Sure. Um, dating back to Walter Ruther. Walter and Victor, his brother Victor toured the world, um, met with auto workers around the world, and really... Um, adopted a very internationalist policy in the UAW for years and years, have been a global leader when it comes to international solidarity, and specifically around human rights, labor rights issues, such as um, we were very instrumental in working um, underground with the um, anti-apartheid struggle. We were very instrumental, um, sneaking printers into Poland during the 80s, um, 
when Lula was on trial during the military dictatorship. Uh, and that would be in Brazil for my listeners. Yep. That was in Brazil. Uh, the and U- Lula was a, uh, came out of the labor movement in he Brazil. He was an auto worker and um, started the Workers' Party and was um, put on trial for organizing many strikes at auto companies. He was very successful. And um, to shine a light on what a kangaroo court um, Brazil was trying to pull off the UAW sent a representative to sit in the courtroom every single day and send dispatches back to Detroit and around the world. And that type of international solidarity that goes back 25 years or, or, or more helps us today. And um, it helps us with our organizing efforts, with our bargaining, these relationships that we have close relationships with South Africans, um, with the Brazilians, with the Poles, with Germans, and that kind of cooperation really pays off. And let's make it more obvious because uh, people might not get it, but auto manufacturing is a global industry. That's right. And so what happens in uh, South Africa and what we're going to talk about in Korea, there are auto manufacturers that affect UAW members and vice versa, right? That's right. Absolutely. So. General, we we look after um, or try to have influence when we hear about General Motors misbehaving in places like Colombia or Brazil or or India, etc. We try to um, bring the company around, and we then look towards, let's say, the Koreans when there's uh, misconduct at Hyundai in Alabama or when we're trying to organize um, on the ground at Nissan, we work with our Japanese colleagues. Mm -hmm. But in the case of Korea right now, like Brazil and other parts of the world, like even in the United States, there has been a massive political coup that has happened. And um, Han, um, I first learned about Han um, in a really personal way when he led and basically an occupation of an auto plant called Sangyang Motor. Um, when did that happen? That was back in 2009. And what happened was Sangyang Motor was sold to a Chinese company, and the Chinese company basically decided to just liquidate. And the workers, as it is in a lot of places in the world, if you lose your job in South Korea, it's a death sentence. There is no social safety net. So these workers were fighting for their lives, really, and they occupied the plant. And the South Korean government um, responded in a very brutal, vicious way. So they dropped liquid tear gas on the families who were surrounding the plant trying to bring food to families. Mm. Um, They cut off water. They um, tasered workers um, and, and, and brutalized physically brutally beat these workers. Um, and so the occupation ended, and Han for, served his... He led that. He's How long a, was the occupation for, roughly? For 71 days. Wow. That's I believe, a, around 71 days. Um, and in the end, he he was sent to jail for three years. Got it. And so he was um, sent to jail because of that. Yes. And then was released. Yes. And then... And then he um, held, it's very common in South Korea to go up on an aerial crane and do what they call a sit-in. And I wish I still remembered the Korean word for it because it's very unique to the country. Um, But he went on behalf of the workers that were laid off, the Sangyang Motor Workers. He held a 171-day sit-in in this crane and his colleagues will send up food to him and he sends down waste and you know you battle the weather you battle loneliness and and um and he he, did this after he was released from prison yes he did and the reason he did that was a strike still about that same plan to win um to win payment mm-hmm. for workers, some severance, mm-hmm. and um, and get the company to wow. to uh, bring around some concessions. And he was successful. And um, so his, his leadership ability, his courage, bravery, um, in 2014, he was elected um, as the KCTU president. So he went from being chairman um, at the Korean Metal Workers Union, which is our sister, the UAW sister union, to the federal level. 
to the KCTU, the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions. And he, um, as president of the KCTU, at a time when the Korean government was um, making sweeping labor reforms that were very damaging to workers and the uh, Korean government was extremely corrupt. He led protests in the streets, um, I think it was weekly, where you, there were around 100,000 or more um, that would participate. Civil society partners all came together. And, um, and when I see those protests, you know, they're not like, frankly, the mild ones here in the U.S. where they're kind of Frankly, and I hope I'm not criticizing people in the U.S. for doing this, but people kind of march in a very orderly way. But there, it's like really energetic, and there's this massive, like, real confrontation with the police. Where yeah. they, you know, I don't think that they go out and asking for permits and do it in this, you know, really sedate way in the way the U.S. does. It's very confrontational. It is. Well, it's confrontational because the government responds with Correct. water cannons, right. rubber bullets, tear gas. And as a young, I remember talking to a colleague of mine from the KMWU, and she said, oh, her job during some of these demonstrations is to pick up the tear gas canisters and throw them back away from the workers. And so they, they all have kind of Assigned, defined, right. defined yeah, jobs. And they're very brave. And, and actually, there was a fatality during one of the demonstrations because of a water cannon that they shot a water cannon on a 60-year-old demonstrator. And to your point, so that we want to underscore this, sure. some of the uh, the demonstrations were about, obviously, labor conditions, but also they're standing up to the park regime, the corrupt president who, was, who has been impeached been, and deposed. It, successfully, they had um, her impeached, and she's now in jail. And was, Not the same jail as Han, but... And was he jailed because specifically because of that for his protest on park or because of a labor fight? He was jailed for his participation in uh, leading these protests. Mm -hmm. Against the president. Against the president. And you, you would think now that they have a newly elected president who has... Um, a reputation as a human rights, labor rights lawyer, we had hoped that Han would be at the top of his list um, f for a pardon. As well as, there's also the general secretary of the KCTU who has been under house arrest, and she is um, stuck in the at the KCTU office. Um, not her home, but the Oh, so she has, she's essentially imprisoned there. She can't leave there. She cannot leave there. I don't want to make the analogy with Julian Assange because that has, a, that, but the point is that she is stuck in a, essentially a workplace and yes. that's become her home and she can't leave there. That's right. That's right. And so um, many times political prisoners in Korea are in solitary confinement. Um, and what are Han's conditions, as far as we know, in, in prison right now? From what we know, he is allowed five visits a month. Um, he's still trying to conduct business, as well as balance that with um, family who want to come and see him. Um, I know that he, he, there was a family member who was in the military who took leave to come see his father, and um, they denied him access. Um, Han doesn't talk too much, or we don't have a lot of information about his family because he wants to protect them. Um, but we're very hopeful that we can put pressure on the new South Korean government in a meaningful way um, so that Han is released and uh, Secretary General Lee is released and all the other trade unionists um, who might be incarcerated in South Korea. So let's talk about the trial. Okay. Um, what did they charge him with? And then t tell us a little bit about that. They charged him with obstruction, which is a, a very broad um, kind of charge. But yeah, it, it, in Korea, usually it's obstruction of business. Mm. But um, this was just called obstruction. And originally, he was given a five-year sentence that was reduced to three. He's now just for, for obstruction. A, just for obstruction. And basically that means for, you know, leading a demonstration. Hmm. Um, and so now he has served two of the three years. So his prison sentence is 
about two-thirds done, but we want him out earlier. And so the UAW is doing what in that respect? Well, the UAW's ex International Executive Board in August um, passed a resolution to really ramp up the campaign. Mm -hmm. And Dennis has been meeting with... Uh, That's Dennis Williams, the president of the UAW. Thank you. Dennis has been meeting with um, our government and to look at ways to raise it with the South Korean government um, at the highest levels. And on top of that, we also have a public campaign on our UAW website. There's a petition. But really, we're looking for ways um, at the high political level to try to raise this issue. And you would think um, that since the United States just recently negotiated a so-called free trade agreement with Korea, that there would be some ways of leverage because of that specific economic relationship that was created, right? That's right. And with some rumors that there, there could be a renegotiation of the chorus FTA um, that is an opportunity to raise Han and labor rights um, at these high levels. So. so Han is an example of someone in jail, but is he the only one? Is this like a one-off for Korea? No, not at all. And for years uh, since the dictatorship fell, the Korean government has jailed labor leaders. And in fact, the first KCTU president, Dan Byung-ho, he was jailed, um, and the UAW fought for his release and won it. Um, not only the UAW, but unions around the world. And in some respects, it's with the Korean labor movement, it's a bit of a badge of courage to have gone to jail at some point in their career. Um, but what makes Han unique is that now we, there is a new government in place, um, and President Moon has a reputation for um, respecting human rights and labor rights. And so we're very hopeful that um, there's a chance where there, there can be some substantial changes in, in South Korea. And um, the unions have a big role to play, and so we need Han out in front on that. So of all the issues out there that people should care about, why this particular political prisoner, Han, why this particular struggle in Korea? What does this say to the people who are listening to this and why they should care about this in a very you know, intense way? Well, I think that any time democracy is threatened, we need to rise up and, and fight back. And Han's only crime is leading demonstrations to expose a corrupt government. And um, his imprisonment is an attack on freedom of assembly, attack on freedom of speech, attack on freedom of association. And so if we don't resist that, if we don't um, call call it for what it is, then we'll find it in our own backyard. And we have found it in our own backyard. And um, I, I don't think of it as um, South Korea or this is happening in Brazil, so I shouldn't care about it. This is happening at the global level, and we have to resist at the global level. So that's why Han is important, and that's, that's why we're doing everything we can to get him released. I also had a chance to catch up with the international director of Han's union, Mi Kyung Ryu, and we spoke about Han and about the general reality of the union fight in South Korea. So Mi Kyung, maybe the way to start since we had this um, initial conversation is to tell my listeners, in fact, there are similarities between the United States labor unions and Korean labor unions in terms of power and how unions are organized. And I think that would be maybe come as a surprise to people. Uh, thank you for inviting me to speak about the situation in Korea. Uh, let me start uh, uh, with saying that uh, historically, uh, the union the, uh, and labor movement uh, was the key part of a broader social movement for social justice and democracy. Mm. 
And, and this was during the dictatorship as yes, well, yes? Yes, and uh, the union movement uh, was uh, developed uh, uh, in the process of uh, this kind of uh, broader social movement mm. for democracy. So trade union uh, is a mass movement for social justice and democracy, I can say that. But uh, the problem is being a union member or establishing union is very, very difficult. And sometimes you have to take your life or you have to take your everything. So uh, I don't know how much the union density in the US here, but in Korea, it's only 10% or less than that. Well, now, depending on who you listen to, in the private sector, because sometimes we talk about mm -hmm. this as two different things, in the private sector, it's probably 6%. Maybe okay. some people say 5 some people say a little more than 6 but around that. And then if you add the public sector, maybe the total union density is very close to what is in Korea, 10 maybe 11%, which is historically very, very low. That's too bad. <laughs> yes. we, we are facing a very similar problem. So uh, at this moment, KCTU uh, is focusing on a broad uh, campaign uh, to call on uh, trade union right for all, because we found that uh, the difficulty for the trade union rights comes from the repressive law and institution uh, for forming and joining a union. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's the, if we, not to get too detailed, but is there a way of describing the basic three steps to form a union that makes it so difficult? Uh, actually, uh, for the procedure, uh, it's uh, much more easier uh, mm -hmm. in Korea than here. For example, you can uh, form a union only, uh, with only two members in the same workplaces. So you have uh, two, member, uh, two workers in the same workplaces who want to establish union you can do that. Even if there are 10,000, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit. Yeah. Even if there are 10,000 people, just two have to say, we want a union? Yes, uh, in law. But uh, if you have only two members, you cannot do anything. <laughs> you cannot do anything. Uh, well, does the company, when you say form a union, does, mm -hmm. that, does that require the company to actually sit down and negotiate with those two people under the law? Not really. Yeah. Yeah. You you, you need uh, some very very difficult procedure to get mm. the uh, authority to bargain collectively with your employer. Mm -hmm. So it's a different uh, matter. But uh, former union is not very uh, difficult. But in general, the law restricts the uh, the coverage of the trade union rights. For example, you cannot join a union if you don't have a job. Mm. Uh, a meaning a job in the what we call the formal economy with yeah. an actual employer and some sort of actual structure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you cannot join a union if you are not worker, you, if you are not considered as worker in law, for example. But there are many workers in Korean economy who are not recognized as worker in legal term. For example, the construction equipment operators who are working in the construction site, they are not worker. Really? Yeah, the, the cargo truck drivers is not worker in law because uh, the definition of worker in uh, Korean law is uh, you have a relation uh, with a certain employer. Uh -huh. And you have to, uh, depending on depending uh, on your wage uh, for your living. But these workers, and you have to uh, have a, a employment contractor with a certain mm -hmm. employer. But the construction uh, equipment operator, for example, or the cargo truck drivers, they don't have uh, employment relationship with certain employer. Instead. They are regarded as an uh, independent contractor. That's exactly the problem here in the United mm -hmm. States as well. I mean, mm -hmm. there are many people. I, I remember when we formed a, a union for freelance writers mm -hmm. who are all considered independent contractors and therefore under the labor law, mm -hmm. if you go that way, 
are not considered quote unquote employees mm -hmm. and they don't have the same rights that let's say someone who was working in an auto plant or a steel plant yeah. or working in a hospital as a employee. So it's very similar, I think. Maybe, you know, there's probably really differences in the way mm -hmm. it's defined, but at the at the base it's mm -hmm. the same thing. Yes. And for example, uh, we have a very strong teachers union, mm. like in the US, and also we have a very strong government employees union. But now these two union uh, are not legal organization or uh, recognized as union because uh, out of 60,000 members of the Korean Teachers and Education Workers Union, six are dismissed because uh, due to their union activity, for example, they join a public statement mm -hmm. uh, to like criticize the, the government, the, the government's mm. policy, or they join a rally organized by the KCT, for example. So they uh, are fired, they are dismissed for their union activity, and the union uh, want to protect them. So they, the union constitution, union by law, allow their membership after the dismissal. But the law is banning on the union membership for the dismissed workers. So, I, but it's just the six workers who were no longer union members. The 60,000 still yeah. remain union yeah. members. Yeah. Okay, so as soon as I, I understand, so the law says that if you're convicted or you're dismissed because of activity that's political, mm -hmm against the government. This was under Park, I assume, President Park, who was impeached and removed. Yes. Now those six don't have union membership. They have because the union want to protect them, yep. but the law uh, is prohibiting. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the, uh, the Ministry of Labor under the Park's government uh, order to this union to expel these members. Mm -hmm. But the union uh, decided by the uh, member uh, voting mm. to continue uh, their, uh, to maintain their uh, by law to protect the, these uh, dismissed workers. And then the government uh, just informed that you are not the legal union anymore. Oh, so that's what I was kind of getting at. So what happened was just to protect the six, mm -hmm. the whole union was yes, essentially exactly. delegitimized. Yes. They said the government wrote them off completely yes. and said you are no longer a union for anybody. Mm -hmm. Wow. And did that not, because Park has been removed, is that still in effect, that ruling against the union, the teachers union? Actually, uh, the union uh, filed a, uh, an appeal. File, yeah, file an appeal to the court, and the court is still mm. review the uh, case. But for the time being, the union doesn't have any legal status. But that's, a, I mean, the big picture then here is what you are saying, going back to the campaign about broad rights, is this, in, this authoritarian government mm -hmm. essentially had the power with one decision mm -hmm. to get rid of an entire union, which just shows the lack of democracy yeah. and the ability of workers to have some yeah. power. Yeah, yeah. And uh, apart from uh, the power of the government, and I'd like to empathize the power of the big businesses, and mm -hmm. we call it Tebal, uh, the family-owned yeah. conglomerate in yes. Korea. Samsung, for example. Yes, yep. Samsung and Hyundai and LG or something like that. Everybody recognizes those names, those names in the United States, for sure. Yes. And uh, we can say that the Korean economy or Korean politics dominated by these, uh, yeah. How many are there? Remind me of the, big, the biggest ones. Well, uh, normally we, we uh, say that we have top five conglomerates, the family-owned conglomerates. Mm. There are more, but yeah. The biggest five. one with the biggest power. And there's been some indictments in Samsung, yes. crimes, and yes, I, I, I've right. been reading yes. about that yeah. very closely. Yes, so you may heard about the corruption scandal between yes. the government and mm. Samsung. and uh, But behind the scene, the Samsung uh, and other conglomerates are very anti-union. Mm. And even Samsung uh, maintain uh, their management policy, uh, which is called non-union management. So the founding father of Samsung uh, leave uh, uh, his last word uh, saying that uh, I will not allow, uh, I will allow 
uh, trade union in Samsung over my dead body. body. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so this slogan uh, is still uh, being maintained by the management of Samsung. And uh, Hyundai, for example. Mm -hmm. Hyundai has uh, their uh, factory in Alabama in the United States. In Alabama, yep. Yeah. And Hyundai is uh, dominating all the car industry and almost of the manufacturing sector uh, in Korea is uh, related to Samsung, uh, Hyundai, um, Auto uh, Company, and Kia. Uh, so uh, Hyundai is on the top of the multi-layered subcontracting mm. system or supply chain. And uh, Samsung, uh, Hyundai uh, is dominating everything. And uh, recently it was revealed that Hyundai directly engaged in the union busting campaign in their supply chain. For example, the first tier supplier. Mm -hmm. So they hire uh, union busting, um, how do you Law firms or experts firms, or consultants. Yes. yes, we have them in the United States. Yes. That's it's a whole industry, yeah. multi-billion-dollar industry. Yeah. And uh, these uh, these union-busting uh, law firm advise mm -hmm. uh, to Hyundai and its supplier, the management of supplier, to using or misusing the law, uh, which make it very difficult uh, for union to bargain collectively with their employer uh, under the the union pluralism or multi-union at workplace level. So in Samsung, there are no unions right there now? There are no unions in Samsung uh, workplaces, but we were uh, very successful to organize some workers in uh, in Samsung's, the workers who are working for Samsung Electronics subsidiary, I see. but they are not hired by Samsung, Sam, Samsung uh, subsidiary. Got it. Yes, but yeah, anyway. And so Hyundai has unions, right? Yes, has some they unions. have a very uh, strong union. Very in strong Hyundai. militant union, mm -hmm. yes. So they, is the difference simply that you were able to organize Hyundai early on or because they don't have the same culture like Samsung, you know, over my yeah, dead body? Yeah. They, ex they more or less accepted unions or they're willing to deal with them? What's the difference why is there a union in Hyundai, but not at Samsung? Obviously, I know why Samsung, because they're anti-union. But why were you able to get one in Hyundai? The, the, the culture yeah, uh, is uh, the quite culture. Uh, yeah, different. Samsung doesn't uh, allow mm. any single union. And sometimes they are using, uh, they, 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 they use some very dirty tech. Uh, tactics. Like For example, they kidnapping some uh, organizers to other islands to uh, isolate these uh, organizers to meet other workers. Samsung does Samsung. that. They kidnap yeah. organizers. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they hire people to kidnap them, take them as hostages to another island. You've had examples of that. Yes, it's very, uh, we, we have a very recent case uh, when we organized the workers uh, in the uh, subcontracting mm. workers mm. in Samsung Electronic Services who are repairing your uh, smartphone or air conditioner yeah, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, it happened while we are organizing uh, those workers. Incredible. Yeah, so uh, let's come back to the Hyundai yes. uh, things. They hire the uh, union busting firm, mm. and they misusing the law, uh, very restrictive law. So they established, the management established a yellow union, mm -hmm. the, the employers-friendly uh, union right. in Inside. the workplaces. And at the same time, they intimidate the, the members of the KMWU, uh, they are the UAW's counterpart in Korea, and uh, they harassed uh, the members uh, individually. Mm -hmm. uh, in, for example, they harassed, uh, they uh, threat the workers uh, by the physical violence, or they harass uh, the workers uh, mentally. Mm. They bullying the workers, or they. Um, file the lawsuit against the individual union member for very minor uh, conduct. This is a very similar thing mm -hmm. that happens mm -hmm. in the United States mm -hmm. where somebody, when you try to organize mm -hmm. a union, um, workers are bullied, intimidated, harassed. I've never heard yet of workers being kidnapped mm -hmm. or something. Is this, and so this leads me to the question is, 
one reason that Hyundai misuses the law is it similar to what happens in the United States mm -hmm. that the that the penalty mm -hmm. is so small mm -hmm. that they can do it because even if they get caught mm -hmm. the money they have to pay for a penalty they don't go to jail for that crime but they just pay a small amount is that the same thing in yeah it's the same but uh, recently it has a little uh, bit changed so so the CEO of the Hyundai Motor supplier who were colluded with Hyundai uh, uh, in the union busting campaign were uh, indicted mm. for the uh, unfair labor practice and finally uh, they were convicted uh, and they are imprisoned now. Really? But they put them in prison for yes, that? Yes, yes. But the uh, sentence is very... Uh, a very uh, minor. Minor. Yeah. Uh, you uh, when you compare it to the sentence for the, our president who is in, in jail now, uh, right. I will tell you later. Yes, let's talk a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. um, your president, as I spoke mm -hmm. with uh, Christine Peter mm -hmm. from the UAW, tell me your version of what's happened to your president and what you're trying to do to get him out. Yeah, he was sentenced uh, for three years imprisonment. Finally, at the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and the charge uh, was various, but uh, mainly uh, he was arrested and indicted uh, for his activity as a head of KCTU. Mm -hmm. In 2014, uh, under the previous government, Park's government, uh, the government uh, was colluded with the chamberers, the, the, the conglomerates, to push ahead with the anti-union and uh, anti-labor uh, law revision. So to protest against this, uh, protest this uh, retrogressive labor reform, we staged a general strike mm. and mass mobilization for whole year. And this protest was culminated by the people's mass mobilization, uh, which was joined by the different social movements, mm -hmm. not only the trade union, but also the movement of peasants and students and urban poor and uh, different uh, civic groups. And it wasn't, as I remember, just about labor rights. It was the overall the focus on the corrupt government and trying to get the, her removed yes. because of all the corruption, the connection to the Samsung and all this uh, yeah. nefarious stuff. Yes, but uh, when we uh, organized this kind of mass mobilization in 2014, the corruption issue was not revealed yet. Uh -huh. But uh, the government was already uh, anti-democracy mm. uh, at this time, uh, apart from this corruption. So, they were jailing opponents. They were yeah. Yes. So all the uh, social movement will get together and stage a very uh, massive uh, a demonstration in Seoul. I remember seeing the pictures. It was yes, huge, huge. Yes. But uh, at the time, uh, the police uh, didn't allow to have a big demonstration in uh, the very center of the city. Actually, in law, uh, we don't have to get permission from the police to uh, hold the rally. But uh, sometimes they misusing this uh, law and sometimes they ban uh, a certain uh, demonstration in the pretext of the Safety and traffic. Yes, traffic. And they make up some reason and they yes. say, oh, we can't let this happen yes. because it'll disrupt the day or be unfair or yes. disruptive. Yes. Right. So on that day, it was uh, 11, uh, 14th of November mm -hmm. in 2000. Ah, it's not 2014, it's 2015. Anyway, so we uh, submitted a report to the police station and they banned on this uh mobilization and uh, demonstration. But uh, we found this is unfair. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it has not any legal uh, ground. Uh, so we decide to uh, maintain our plan to hold a rally and a march to the presidential house to deliver our voice against mm -hmm. the, the, the labor reform. And then the police uh, deployed uh, a lot of water cannons and bus barricade. You don't know what is bus barricade. They, they used the police buses uh, mm -hmm. to uh, move the police officers. They, they just uh, put these bus buses 
with some uh, wall mm. on it uh, to block the march. So uh, there are some conflicts uh, was happened between the police and protesters, and the prosecutors uh, hold our president uh, accountable or liable for all action taken by all the protesters mm. on that day. So they indicted him for the, the obstruction of general traffic and obstruction of public, uh, public duty of the police and so on, and the violation of the law acts on uh, demonstration and rally. So the... So he's now been in prison for three years. It's, uh, I mean, two years yes. for a three-year term. Yes. And many people are trying to mobilize to get him yes. out of prison, which would be obviously a good thing if that would be successful. What I wanted to kind of end with was a discussion which we really should talk about is actually the informal economy and the, the reality of Korean workers, because mm -hmm. I think that most people just don't know. The reason you're trying to have this campaign to have union rights is because people can't survive and are very difficult. So can you describe in a, in a few words what does the average worker that you're representing face? Mm -hmm. Actually, uh, the KCTU was, uh, or the democratic labor movement was uh, started with uh, organizing workers in small and medium-sized workplaces, mm -hmm. uh, which were generally women workers, mm -hmm. for example, in 1970s and 1980s. And when the uh, industry, the main industry of Korea, uh, uh, converted from this small and medium-sized si industry to the heavy industry like auto and electronics, electronics and the, the shipbuilding and so on. Mm -hmm. So uh, there uh, was a big movement uh, of uh, the workers who are in this main industry in 1987, 1987. and uh, also other workers in public sector and uh, some uh, white collar workers and teachers and government employees joined uh, this movement. So as of uh, 1995, when we were uh, founded, when the KCT was founded, uh, at the time we represent uh, workers uh, in different uh, sectors who are uh, regular mm -hmm. and permanent workers. But uh, in 1997, when Korea and other countries in East Asia faced the economic uh, crisis, crisis, financial yeah. crisis, we, uh, the government accepted the IMF's uh, bailout program and structural adjustment pro program. Yeah. And that time, uh, the law was changed to allow uh, different types of precarious jobs like uh, temporary agency work and fixed term and short term work. And the, the uh, focus self-employed jobs, which I uh, described previously. Yeah. So, uh, and we, we, we can say that uh, around 50% of uh, the whole working uh, population in Korea is uh, working in these precarious uh, jobs. So precarious is they, they don't know whether they're gonna have a job, you know, a month or two months from now, no, no real security, and the wages are low. So mm. what's, what I'm trying to get at is how, how much of a crisis now are workers facing in terms of the actual ability to pay their wages, because that's what's happening in the U.S. right now. People just can't afford, and this is why there was an election recently, mm -hmm. which people were just angry at the system. Mm -hmm. They just don't trust the politicians. They don't trust the economic system. Mm -hmm. And I think that sounds similar to what's happening in Korea. Yes. So, yeah, these uh, precarious workers uh, cannot enjoy any employment security, so they can fire at any time the employer wants. So. Uh, and uh, in average, uh, the wage of these precarious workers are on almost half or 60% of the, the permanent workers. Even though you are working the same job, uh, even though you are working, uh, uh, doing the same job in, uh, in the same workplaces, your wage uh, is different from the regular workers and you are not protected uh, uh, with a permit, your, you don't know your yeah. job. Now, now the important thing is when people are listening, they don't understand the context. 
what if you're only making 60% of that wage, what can't you do? What does it cost, you know, to pay your rent? You know, I'm trying to give a real concrete feel for pe to people that you can't survive that way. It's mm -hmm. too expensive. Is that right? Can you yeah, help with that? Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, depending on how you can calculate the, the, the living cost, but... Uh, more or less. Yeah, more or less. Uh, uh, the average wage of the, the, the workers uh, only earn only 60% of the, the actual uh, living cost, mm. uh, according to our analysis and our survey. And so that extra 40% means they go into debt. All workers are in big debt. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, example, uh, especially the uh, rental fee for your housing is very expensive, and the education fee is very expensive. So uh, you have to spend a lot of money uh, for your uh, children's education. So can so, you sum up in a few words what the mm, crisis is that Korean workers are facing? Describe it in a... Well... Uh, it, economically. Economically, yeah. Uh, well, uh, it's not uh, easy for me to explain uh, because the situation of the workers are very different uh, depending on your job and so on. So, but. We, we, Generally, yeah, we found that uh, the general uh, problem uh, is, for example, we can say that the the Korean labor market uh, is characterized by income inequality and uh, employment insecurity and low protection of trade union rights, uh, as I mentioned before. So. Uh, Almost half of the working population who have the precarious jobs uh, cannot uh, uh, make uh, the decent life. And almost of the uh, precarious workers earn only the minimum wage. And the minimum wage is a little bit increased in uh, this year's negotiation, but it is still far from uh, the actual living cost you needed uh, to survive. And now it's time for our Robert Baron of the Week. Our Robert Baron of the Week is Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike. And why are we bestowing him with that lovely title this week? Well, a lot's been in the news about tax reform. And, you know, one of the things that I've talked about a lot is how corporations offshore hide billions and billions of dollars outside the United States so they don't have to pay a fair tax. Well, According to the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, Nike earned more than $10 billion, $10 billion in U.S. profits from 2008 to 2015, but only paid 18.6% in U.S. federal taxes. Now, how did they manage to avoid paying higher taxes? Well, one way is they manage this low U.S. tax rate by shifting large portions of their domestic profits into offshore tax havens. Nike, in fact, has, according to ITEP, 54 subsidiaries in places that are widely considered to be tax havens, even in places like Bermuda that don't have any Nike stores. And as of 2016, Nike had roughly $12.2 billion in offshore profits on which it would owe $4.1 billion if it was repatriating those profits based on the normal tax rates. But if the Republicans pass their tax plan in which they propose a repatriation tax rate of just 12%, Nike would save $2.7 billion. And so why does Parker get to be the robber baron of the week? So while they're hiding all these billions, Parker's doing just fine. Here's how good. He recently had to take a 70% cut in pay, which meant 
that his total compensation, which is pay and stock options and other benefits, as you know, that went from $47.6 million in 2016 down to a paltry $13.9 million. We don't feel sorry for someone who's engineering a mass tax scam, hiding billions from the people's government, and that's why Mark Parker is the robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Christine Peter and Mikyung Ryu, for talking to me about Korea. Our audio editor is David Hebden. Please do subscribe to the podcast. Become a financial supporter of the podcast at workinglife.org. You can click on the podcast tab. That'll give you the direction of how to subscribe and to support us. Look forward to having you back next week.